We're going to be looking at Psalms 90 tonight. The prayer of Moses. And before we even start, why don't we open in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for um, the blessing of the rain, Lord, that you have given to us, Lord. Thank you for your mercies that are new every day, Lord. And thank you that we can taste and see the goodness of our Lord. And I pray that you'd be with us tonight as we look at Psalms 90, as we try to understand the heart of this prayer and some of the meanings that are in it and some of the ways that the supplications have been answered by you. And I pray that you would give us a deeper appreciation for you, a deeper understanding, and a deeper reverence for our God. And I pray that you'd speak through me, um, what I have uh, studied and planned to speak, Lord, that you would move in our hearts to draw us closer to you, if it be your will. Amen. All righty, so the prayer of Moses brings the first question, who is the author of Psalms 90? So traditionally, the Moses who led the Israelites out of Egypt has been credited as the author of Psalms 90. Uh, Many theologians and scholars who I trust have agreed with his authorship. However, naturally, some more recent commentaries and theologians have disagreed, finding it highly unlikely that the Moses could have authored the Psalms. So I personally believe that it was Moses of the Old Testament as the author and not someone else, and that's traditionally been what many have believed. Um, One reason that I think supports Moses being the author is that the Pentateuch contains prayers of Moses, And the two chapters I'm specifically referring to would be Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. Both of these chapters contain a similar poetic nature as that of Psalms 90. And both these chapters are credited to Moses as prayers. Also, when studying Psalms 90, we get a much richer meaning, and I think it makes more sense, when we look at it from the eyes of Moses and his life experiences. So for me and for this sermon, I take the position that Moses of the Old Testament was the author, and hopefully no one here contests that. So with Moses being the author of Psalms 90, this makes this Psalms the oldest Psalms in the book of Psalms. The title says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. So the title, The Man of God, was used of various people throughout the Bible, but including that of Moses. In Ezra 3.2, it says, As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Deuteronomy 33.1, This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. And Joshua 14.6, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. So Moses is referred to as the man of God throughout the Old Testament, as here in Psalms 90. So understanding that he is the author, we now need to understand the context of Psalms 90, in which it was written. Many believe that the Psalms was written during the 40 years the Israelites wandered in the wilderness after disobeying God, specifically more at the beginning of the 40 years. And I agree that that would make the most sense concerning the things Moses prays for. But the exact timing probably isn't too important. So a few bullet points of things we're going to see in this Psalms is we're going to see Moses in his prayer. He's going to compare, he's going to make a comparison between God's eternality and man's mortality. He's going to demonstrate uh, a demonstration of God's wrath. And he makes many illustrations of man's frailness and brevity of life under God's wrath. 
So now that we have an idea of some of the themes that we see in this prayer, let's understand the author a little better. Understanding the life experiences of any person lends much to the explaining the content of one's prayer. So to understand better this prayer, Moses, let us first understand more about Moses. If this was written during the wandering in the wilderness, then Moses would have had much experiences in witnessing man's frailness and God's wrath. There are numerous incidences throughout the Israelites' wilderness journey that God's wrath is displayed toward the Israelites and their enemies. And we're going to look at a few of those. So the first one would be the ten plagues and the Egyptian demise. So beginning all the way back in Egypt, the Israelites witnessed God's power displayed against the Egyptians. In the beginning of Exodus, the Egyptians experienced the ten plagues, with the final one being the death to all firstborns. Then shortly after the Israelites are given freedom, the whole Egyptian army races after them to destroy them. But while pursuing the Israelites, the entire Egyptian army is instantly killed by the walls of the Red Sea falling down upon them. Moses and the Israelites witnessed instant crushing death to a whole army by the hand of God. Man's frailness met God's wrath and lost bitterly. Unfortunately, this awesome display of God's wrath and power was quickly lost in the memories of the Israelites, as we see what they later do. The next example, Exodus 32, 9 through 13, I'll just read that section. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So here we have the Israelites worshiping a golden calf that they had created. So now it is the Israelites versus God's wrath. This is one of the multiple instances that Moses pleads with God to have mercy and not consume the Israelites. Moses had witnessed God's wrath firsthand and knew how devastating his wrath could be. Moses places himself between God's anger and the people deserving of it, and pleads that God would have mercy. And we're going to see that Moses assumes this position many times. And in the instance of the golden calf, only 3,000 men were killed. Another example of God's wrath, Korah's rebellion. Number 16, we'll read a few verses throughout there. Verses 31 through 35 say, And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. And then continuing down to verse 41 through 50 of number 16. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. 
And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces, and Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And now another example, the bronze serpent, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So hopefully you're seeing all throughout this journey from Egypt to Canaan how God's wrath is repeatedly displayed. And the last one I want to look at is the wilderness wandering. So if Psalms 90 was written during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, then Moses was daily waking up and reminded of God's wrath and man's frailness. The wandering in the wilderness was all the result of God's wrath on the Israelites. We're going to read Numbers 14, multiple vo- uh, verses throughout that chapter. Beginning 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud voice, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. Then 11 through 12, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the sins that I have, signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation great and mightier, greater and mightier than they. So then, once again, we see Moses plead for the Israelites. And then God's verdict in 21 through 23. But truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. And then 28 through 35, we see the actual punishment. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all your number listed on the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. 
But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in this wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead body lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure." I, the Lord, have spoken, surely this will I do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. So daily Moses was waking up and reminded of how the Israelites did not trust and obey God. And now we're experiencing God's wrath. Every time someone died, everyone was reminded that this was God's wrath on them for their disobedience. So that's the end of the introduction. Hopefully this creates a context as we begin to look at what Moses is praying here. So let's begin to study the prayer of Moses. And we're going to repeatedly look back at all these examples of life experiences he's had. So I divided Psalms 9 into three sections. The first section is titled Everlasting God. It's verses 1 through 10, or sorry, 1 through 2. So Moses begins by thanking God for what he has done. Verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So in verse 1, what does Moses mean by dwelling place? How can God be a dwelling place? Well, Moses makes a very similar claim of God in Deuteronomy 33, 26-27. There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help, to the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he's thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So to understand this, let's place ourselves in Moses' life. Assuming this was written during the 40 years of wandering in the desert, then every day since coming out of Egypt, the Israelites had awoke to see the dark cloud over them, that was the presence of God. Every night the Israelites went to bed observing the pillar of fire. Also, once the tabernacle had been constructed, God's presence filled the tabernacle and he abode with the Israelites. Some uh, verses that highlight this, Exodus 13, 21 through 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. And then Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud set it on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from, the, taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was, on it, was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So Israel was daily surrounded by the presence of God through the cloud, fire, and tabernacle. God provided direction where to go, protection from enemies, manna and quail for food, water during times of drought, God had literally been their dwelling place since they left Egypt and the entire 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. So Moses begins 
this prayer by thanking God for the love he has shown and being his and the Israelites' dwelling place, their safe haven, their abode. A question for us today is, can we say that of God today? Is God our dwelling place? Has he given us the same provisions, protection, and guidance as he did the Israelites? And I say absolutely yes. So then in verse 2, Moses next praises God for his eternality. Moses is not praying to some idol or a weak God. He isn't praying to a temporary, short-lived God. He is praying to an eternal God who has protected him from certain death and destruction by both enemies and his own people, the Israelites. Moses is saying of God that before time began for all living things, God was in existence. And when time ceases to exist and the whole of creation as we know it is gone, God will continue to exist. Every point in time you can imagine God existed before it and after it. Millions of years before the world existed, God existed. And millions of years after this world disappears, God will still exist. For the human mind, we can never fully grasp the concept of everlasting. We read in Psalms 102, 25-27, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Job 36.26, the number of our years are unsearchable. So Moses has begun his prayer with thanksgiving and praise to God. The next section is verses 3 through 12, and I titled it, Mortal Man vs. God's Wrath. And then I broke up those sections into kind of subheadings. And the first we'll look at is 3 through 6, which is the brevity of life. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. In verse 3, we see something repeated that's mentioned in Genesis 3.19. The curse on mankind. By the sweat of your faith you shall eat face, you shall eat bread to return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Moses is reminding the Lord of the curse that he has placed on mankind after man's first sin in the Garden of Eden. Everyone was cursed with death. Moses also recognizes that by a simple command of God, all mankind will return to dust. The natural process of dying and decaying can happen instantaneously if God so chooses. But even if the process of birth, dying, and decaying were to happen in a natural progression of time, to God it would still be a small blimp of time. To to an eternal God, life is incredibly short. And then verse 4, where you combine God's eternality that Moses praised God for at the beginning of his prayer with man's mortality. To God, 1,000 years are but as a single day. Now, just to be clear, Moses is not creating a time conversion of our time to that of God. He's not saying 1,000 years in human terms is equivalent to one day in God's timekeeping. He is rather simply showing that an extremely long period of time for humans, a millennium, is nothing to God's eternal presence. 
He could have said to God, 1,000 years are but as a second. God is not forced to operate within the framework of time. And then the phrase, or as a watch in the night. This creates even a shorter comparison. This phrase is uh, referring to the four-hour period of time that happens during the night when people take turns guarding the city. So Moses is beginning to tear down all element of a man's pride. Our life that we like to believe is so significant and important is a short bleep in God's timeline. 1,000 years is like four hours to God. It is extremely insignificant. So, so far in 3 and 4, Moses has reminded us, reminded us that mankind came from dust and will return to dust. And that mankind's life, all the years that we exist on this earth, are mere minutes to an eternal God. Verses 5 through 6. Moses continues to humble himself before God and continues the analogy of man's frailness. He compares man's life and death on earth as being so short and constant that it is as if a flood came through and was constantly wiping away one generation after another. Nixie compares us to grass. Have you ever seen a grass or flower or a plant? It stands strong and healthy at the beginning of the day. The cool, damp morning provides the plant with vigor and health. The plant has strong turgor pressure. However, by the day's end, after experiencing the constant beating of the sun and wind, the plant is dried, shriveled, and dying. Moses says that is our life before God. One simple day from sunrise to sunset. So now, still looking under at mortal man versus God's wrath, we're going to look at man's life under God's wrath. We already learned that it was very short, but now we're going to look at what it looks like, that short life. 7 through 8, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Moses continues his prayer, but now mentions God's wrath. The, meaning, the meeting of God's wrath to man's frailness is a dreadful thing. Moses warned the Israelites of God's wrath in Deuteronomy. Unfortunately, as we saw, the Israelites, Israelites were a forgetful people and later experienced God's wrath as a consequence of their idolatry. Deuteronomy 4, 24-27 For the Lord our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And in verse 8, it says, Everything is laid bare before God, including our secret sins. This was true for Moses and the Israelites, and is true for us today. All things are exposed to God. Nothing can be hidden from him. All sins, both flagrant and secret, will earn the wrath of God. Jeremiah 16, 7, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. 
Hebrews 4, 12-13, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him we must give an account, to whom we must give an account. Psalms nineteen twelve. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So now we come to the last, last section under mortal man versus God's wrath. And that's the climax of man's life. Verses 9 through 11. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses seems to be referring specifically to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The Israelites had to live out their years under God's wrath for the wrong they had done. There is very little detail of all that transpired over those 40 years. In the end, after dying one by one in the wilderness, everyone 20 and older was eventually dead and gone. Their life of suffering in the wilderness with no possibility of entering the promised land comes to a climax with a simple sigh. The years of toiling and suffering are ended, and they are simply a tale to be told that even then quickly fades away. Now in verse 10, we come to a verse that could have a couple meaning, uh, meanings. Two possible meanings that both could be true. One is, if we keep with the understanding that Moses is right, uh, writing this while beginning to wander in the wilderness, Moses could be referring to the Israelites in the wilderness, specifically the Israelites who were punished to die in the wilderness. So those who were of fighting age and should have gone out and conquered Canaan but did not would reasonably have been between the ages of 20 and 40 years old. These people were now condemned to die in the wilderness over the next 40 years. So if the majority of men who should have fought between, were between 20 and 40 years old, they were now cursed to die in the wilderness within 40 years, and they would have died at the latest age of 60 to 80. So in verse 10, Moses could be referring to the wilderness punishment the Israelites incurred. Everyone was to die, and the majority would die between the ages of 70 and 80 years old. And that's very likely. The other possibility, which is true as well, is Moses could also be saying that generally speaking, at this time in history and beyond, men only live to be around 70 to 80 years old. This also could be true. While some men, including Moses, lived well past that time, many others didn't even come close to living this long due to illnesses and war. So generally speaking, humankind's life expectancy is around 70 to 80 years old. And this would also be true of us in the United States. Now this may seem like a long time, but in the eyes of an everlasting God, these 70 or 80 years are a fraction of a four-hour period of the night, or like the rising and setting of the sun, short and soon gone forever. So both explanations seem plausible and could be considered true. But either way, a human's life is short, even if lived out to its maximum length. So then we come to verse 11, and finally Moses asks a question. Who considers the power of God's wrath and anger? Did the Israelites, when they chose to rebel and whine in the wilderness, did they consider God's wrath when they built the golden calf? 
Or when they became scared at the spies' report and did not heed what Joshua and Caleb said? No. They had a small view of God and never considered his wrath, even though they had experienced it over and over again. They had also seen it on raw display towards the Egyptians. And yet time and again, the Israelites acted without any regard for God's wrath. So the question for us today in application is, do we consider God's wrath when we sin? When we lash out in anger, when we are prideful, steal, lie, cheat, inflict harm and pain, when we lust? When we worship idols, do we consider the judgment we are incurring upon ourselves? So out of this question, Moses comes to his first supplication of God. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. After confessing to God man's frailness, the brevity of life, and man's disobedience, Moses concludes with a supplication. This is what should be our prayer as well after reading the prior verses. We have just learned that our short life is even shorter compared to God's everlasting presence. So what does Moses ask of God? That his people would learn to number our days. Moses is asking for a daily or even hourly recognition that our days are extremely short and rapidly vanishing. He is praising that, praying that we would constantly remember this so that we don't waste our life. Also, he recognizes that if we do analyze the usage of our time, this will lead us to a heart of wisdom. A wise person is aware of where his or her time is going. Psalms 39 verse 4. O oh Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. So Moses' supplication for a heart of wisdom springboards us into the next section where he makes more pleads with God. This is verses 13 through 17, and I titled it, A Plead for God's Steadfast Love. Return, O oh Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Moses just got done praying to God about how powerful God's wrath is, and now he wants the Lord to come. He has experienced much of God's wrath on the Israelites through their journey from Egypt, and yet he's asking for the same God to come. Moses is asking for God's pity, because while God is a wrathful and just God, he is also something else. Moses des desires another attribute of God. If we had stopped at verse 12, Moses desires... Sorry, if we had stopped at verse 12, we would probably be very discouraged because we would only see the wrath and anger of God that is punishing the Israelites. But God has other attributes at work. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses knows that God is also a God of steadfast love. His wrath was a response to Israelite sin, and yet God still did, still did not obliterate the Israelites as they deserved. Yes, everyone 20 and older would die in the wilderness, but their children would still taste of the goodness of the promised land. God still demonstrated steadfast love. The Israelites often whined in the wilderness, and God's anger was shown, but so was his steadfast love. He sent fiery serpents, but also created a cure. He provided manna and quail da daily. He sent water flying out of a rock to satisfy the Israelites' thirst. He buried the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. 
All this was not because the Israelites deserved it. It was because of God's steadfast love. God had made a promise that the Israelites would return to Canaan, and it was going to happen despite all the disobedience the Israelites demonstrated. And this is what Moses wants is God's steadfast love. He pleads to God that him and the Israelites would be satisfied with God's love. He says, satisfy us in the morning. And this continues that grass or plant analogy we talked about earlier. The morning represents the early days of a person's life. He wants the Israelites to be satisfied early in life of God's steadfast love so that all their days they may rejoice and be glad. Remember, Moses is living out the next 40 years in the life of his life in the wilderness where everyone 20 years and older is going to die. He's praying for that next generation of Israelites. He wants the young Israelite children to be satisfied with God's love at an early age. He does not want them to follow in the footsteps of their parents and be full of disobedience that leads to God's wrath, but instead he wants them to see God's love that the former generation seemed to miss. Jonah 2.8, those who pray, sorry, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The Israelites had worshipped idols in place of God and would not enter the promised land. But for the next generation, there is hope. And that's who Moses is praying for. Verse 15, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses continues on in pleading with God. He asks that they would be made glad despite all the years of affliction that they have earned. He is asking that the Israelites... Days would not only be full of evil, but would also be equally full of joy. Verse 16, let our work be shown to your servants. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Moses wants to see God's work. Moses knew that God was working in great ways among the Israelites, and he is asking that God would show them his work and that their children would see God's glorious power. He's praying for that next generation of God's people. And we should pray this for our children today as well. He doesn't want the children of Israel to only see God's wrath, but also his steadfast love and glorious power. He wants them to revere and love God. And then verse 17, Moses' final supplication. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses wants the favor of God, and he wants the work of their hands to be established. Moses knows that God is everlasting while man is not. Man's days are 70 to 80 years, a simple four-hour watch of the night or the rising and setting of the sun. Even a thousand years in the past are simply like yesterday to God. But despite all this, Moses pleads that somehow, some way, his and the Israelites' lives would have lasting meaning, significance, and value beyond their short life. He wants there to be eternal value in what they do. Moses is pleading with God that their short life could somehow bear fruit that could last for an eternity. I think in some ways Moses' prayer had been answered. The new generation of Israelites would conquer a land that would become a home for numerous generations to come and the birthplace of the Messiah. This land would become a beacon of light and truth to many unrighteous people. But I think the most amazing and complete way that his prayer has, was answered was through the work of Christ on the cross. Because of the cross, it is now made possible that our lives and the work the Holy Spirit 
does through us can have eternal value. The gospel and its proclamation can bear everlasting fruit. So much of what Moses is pleading for at the end of Psalms 90, we have seen fulfilled in Christ and continue to see fulfilled. We today have the testimony of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We have seen the greatest demonstration of the steadfast love of the Lord. Through that work on the cross, death is defeated and we have hope of eternal life. We know that the work of our hands will be established by God if we are doing the work of the Lord. Moses, or Matthew six nineteen through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Moses was looking forward to the day of Christ. He was praying for the favor of the Lord, for God to establish their work, and Christ has fulfilled his prayer. Through Christ, we can lay up treasures in heaven, eternal treasures. And through Christ, we can and do experience the immense and immeasurable favor of the Lord. The imputation of Christ's righteousness on us, and simultaneously Christ taking our unrighteousness on himself. Are we praying the same thing that Moses prayed? That our, our lives are just as short as the Israelites, and it quickly disappears with a sigh? Are we striving to live our lives so that the fruit of our lives will last for an eternity? Do we desire for God to establish the work of our hands? Do we desire to see the favor of the Lord? Some here probably do not want the favor of the Lord because with it comes repentance and brokenness over sins. A realization that we are insufficient of ourselves to ever be blameless before God. Without the favor of the Lord, we are barred from the presence of the Lord and from ever producing an eternal fruit of righteousness. As we learned last Sunday in Kent's sermon, with man it is impossible, but not with God. Apart from the steadfast love of God, the work of our hands will never be established, and we will never enter the kingdom of God. But with the steadfast love of God, we can enter the kingdom of God and taste of his goodness. And we can also be about the only work of our hands that will last forever. So as Moses prayed, we should pray, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. So in conclusion... In Psalms 90, we see a progression in Moses' prayer. He opens with thanksgiving to God, that God has been a dwelling place for him and the Israelites. He transitions to praising God's eternalness. After praising God for his eternality, it is as if Moses is then suddenly reminded of man's frailness and brevity, a natural response. Moses begins to confess man's insufficiency. He confesses that man's ultimate end is dust. Man's life is a small blimp in time compared to God, and man's life under the wrath of God is dismal. This confession drives him to a plead with God, that God would have mercy on them, that God's steadfast love would be poured out on the next generation, and that history would not simply repeat itself, but the next generation would be different. He asked God for a heart of wisdom, an immersion of God's love at a young age, a heart of gladness, a glimpse of God's glorious power and work, 
And lastly, God's favor in establishing the work of their hands. And I hope this is our prayer every day. So with that, let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this prayer that you have placed in Psalms. You orchestrated for Moses to pray, Lord. And we thank you for your faithfulness and your steadfast love to the Israelites that we can see. And Lord, I'm sure in our own lives there are examples of steadfast love that we don't see or recognize and that we ignore and repeatedly disobey you in secret or in public, Lord, and sin against you. And I thank you that your love is so great that it sent your son Christ to die on our behalf. And that now we can have the righteousness of Christ on us and our sins can be taken away. And now that we have the privilege to be a part of the work of the Lord, the only thing that will last forever. And I pray that we would be about it, Lord, in our homes, in our workplaces, and wherever we are that we would be faithful to you in representing Christ and in sharing the gospel. And as Moses prayed for the young generation of Israelites, I pray for the children here, Lord, that you would capture their heart at a young age, that you would bring them into your kingdom, and so that from a young age they may glimpse the love of God and that their, all their days may be lived out in obedience to you and following you and being about the work of the Lord. I thank you for this, Psalms, and I pray that we would apply it to our lives. Amen.